Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the pod where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. Our two guests today are being recorded in sequence as we talk of rewilding and nature-human relations. You'll hear first from Ben Goldsmith, author, financier, environmentalist and advocate for rewilding, and then from Iceland, from the director of the Stefansson Arctic Institute, Niels Einarsson. It's super to welcome to the show today Ben Goldsmith, financier, environmentalist, CEO of Menhaden um, and author, and we'll hear about rewilding from Ben. And then we'll move to Iceland and to hear from Niels Einarsson, director of the Stefansson Arctic Institute, who will be talking about uh, orcas and killer whales. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Um, very nice to have you on. Jules, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great privilege. Lovely. So, um, farmer, podcast host of an excellent podcast about rewilding, financier, advocate of wilding and rewilding, and author of the wonderful book, um, God is an Octopus. So, our focus today is on human nature relations and rethinking uh, landscapes, particularly through um, rewilding, but also, as we'll hear later on, marine landscapes. So, um, Ben, how about a start by just telling us a bit about about rewilding and your journey, really? Yeah, I, I grew up with a fascination for nature. I'm, I'm sure you did too, Jules. And in fact, I think all children are born with an innate love of of the non-human world. The, the term biophilia was coined by E.O. Wilson to describe that love that we all have within us for, for wildlife and nature. You know, find a toddler that isn't fascinated by um, you know, a frog or, or 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 a nest of cerulean bird eggs. You know, it's 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 intrinsic to who we are. And so, my childhood memories were all um, revolved around uh, time spent in nature, looking for birds' nests, trying to build ponds that never worked out very well on the sandy soil of Richmond in in West London, on the edge of Richmond Park, where I grew up. And um, I took that love of nature into my teenage years and beyond into adulthood. I think in many people, it becomes dormant. I don't think it goes away. I think even the most um, uh, snazzy, car-driving um, kind of urbanite still has a deep love of nature hidden within. They'll pay twice for an apartment, for example, that, that overlooks a, a park. You know, um, they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll rush for a kind of seafront view hotel room and their holidays. And you see the parks and the cities are full of people. We, we, we yearn for time spent in nature, even if we don't fully know it. Well, in my case, the, the obsession was very much at the surface um, throughout, throughout my life. And um, I mean, age 13, I wrote a letter to Country Life magazine suggesting that their readers lack imagination on the subject of returning wild boar to Britain. Now, I, I, I was obsessed with the idea that wild boar should be back in the woods and in the valleys uh, that I knew um, to the west of London. And of course, that might have been a bit unrealistic. But now, of course, there are wild boar back in quite some numbers in, in, in the southern and western parts of Scotland and the Forest of Dean and the Welsh borders and, and even smatterings of them now through through Dartmoor and Exmoor in Devon. Um, it, it's, it's obviously a keystone species that's back and, and not without controversy. And, and I've always felt and, and feel more passionately than ever now that, that it's a moral duty to try to put things that we've broken back together. Now, I, I think that we're surrounded by a kind of sacred firmament. You know, na nature, is, nature is alive in ways that we, we really 
we, that we feel but we can't quite articulate or understand. You know, we see the way the grass breaks through the pavement given a chance. We see it, it wants to thrive and is governed by natural processes, many of which are beyond our understanding at the moment. The best we can do is try to put the pieces back together and see what happens. And of course, there are places in which we can do that to a great degree, places like the Highlands of Scotland, for example, or, or as we've seen in the Apennine Mountains of Italy or the Cantabrian Mountains of Spain, you know, extraordinarily um, uh, complex ecosystems have been have, have come back together. Um, and there are places where we can't go as far along that spectrum. You know, London parks, for example, where pockets of scrub and natural reeds along the watercourses and things are, are a triumph. Um, and I, I think what we want to try and be doing is 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 pushing all ecosystems along that spectrum as far as is practical and reasonable and this is what i spend my life working on so i have a number of hats but really they're all one thing i'm interested in that i like what you're saying about about the kind of moral reason for this i mean it's it, we've we need to intervene because there's been a long period of of uh, deplenishment, of taking away what was there before. And so we're starting, in a sense, kind of below zero. We've got to kind of bring things back up again. So I'm, I'm interested in this idea of abundance, which you've kind of hinted at there, that, that um, it's not just about numbers of species, but it is about dramatic and fast transformations in all kinds of landscapes. So you farm, you've been changing your farm to a kind of rewilding model, but you've also worked on the rewilding of London, um, a piece of work, which, which as you've just been describing, you've got very different kinds of contexts, super completely wild ones, to the urban where the wild exists in a kind of neighbourly way to us. Um, and there's the opportunity to be doing this thing called wilding and rewilding in all of them and changing this relation that we have between ourselves and nature. Yeah, I, I figure that if we can rewild England, we can rewild anywhere. You know, England is the crucible of of development, kind of farmed landscapes, and mostly human control over ecosystems. You know, it runs deep in our psyche to control every square inch of the landscape, um, to the extent that we're pretty well known for our tidy gardens and straight lines and hedges cut to the quick and bright green grass. And you see that vast patchwork quilt stretching out before you if you fly into almost any English airport. I say English because there's a touch more wildness remaining in in in, in other parts of the United Kingdom and, and and the wider British Isles. And um, I think we can scarcely conceive of the abundance that's been lost in 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 the British Isles, you know, and and in the world, you know, but but particularly here. I mean, I read recently that the salmon, the number of salmon caught on the River Tweed in Scotland in 1822 was a thousand times greater than the number of salmon caught on that same river, the Tweed, in 1922. And the number of salmon caught on the River Tweed in 1922 was a thousand times greater than all the salmon caught in all of the British Isles in 2022. So we're talking a massive depletion of, 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 of abundance across all kinds of species. And the, Eyewitness accounts of the herring fishery coming into the south coast of England you know, in the late 1700s, you know, shoals of fish that were 10 miles by 10 miles, kind of harried on all sides by 
bluefin tuna and different kinds of sharks and dolphins and whales and and by seabirds from the air. You know, one writer who had the surname Goldsmith, no relation, said that the, the, the herring fishery seemed like a single vast, enormous beast trying to lift itself out of the water. There were so many of them. You know, the eel runs out of the seminestery. You know, the, the idea of so many eels that it was as if there was no water, only eels in the entirety of the seminestery. Or the great fens of and the broads of Norfolk and East Anglia and a sky darkening for hours hours and hours as migrating geese and wildfowl made their way north or south. Now, we, we've lost an unbelievable abundance and we can't touch it now. We can't imagine it because with each passing generation in, in a process known as shifting baseline syndromes, syndrome, um, we yearn for things to be as vibrant as they were when we were children without understanding that when we were children, they were already terribly depleted. And thus with each passing generation, expectations diminish. And so I, th I think what's exciting about some of the rewilding projects that have happened in this country, you know, NEP in Sussex or, 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 or Geltsdale in the Pennines or, or Glen Feshi in Indonesia, is, is how rapidly abundance returns if we just take our foot off the throat of nature and allow it to recover. And a key ingredient are the keystone species that play such an important role in, 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 in driving those processes that enable recovery to take place. Yeah, so tell us. Tell us a bit about those keystones, uh, Ben, then. Sorry to come in, because the, yeah. there's something about, uh, as you've been saying, this this rewilding is a kind of change of mindset as well. It's a, you could say it's a kind of wilding of our minds because we need to think differently as well as act differently. And in, in our region, in, in the east of England, in Essex, the beavers that have been introduced into one location have have captured imagination that people are just super interested in what they've done how they've changed the landscape and it's not a unique story because it's happening in lots of parts of the uk but that's an example of a keystone species that changes everything so just just yeah push that one a bit i know you you, you have a kind so, of bright future uh, for I beavers mean I mean, my, my, my particular experience and interest is in our own uh, ecosystems here in Britain. Um, obviously, occasionally I get to travel and, and, and see other ecosystems. And, and I, I love immersing myself and my family in nature at every opportunity. In, in, in Britain, of course, all species play a role. You know, it's some, someone once said you know, that if you pull the thread on a jumper, the whole jumper um, starts to disintegrate because every species plays a role within an ecosystem and is intricately connected with everything else. But we now understand that some species play a disproportionately important role in ecosystems. And I, I can think of four in Britain which are absolutely vital um, in, 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 in holding our, our, our ecosystems together. Um, the term keystone is derived from an architectural technique in building medieval bridges. You remove the keystone and the arch collapses, which is quite convenient for a retreating army, for example. Um, the four keystones that I consider um, to be... Uh, of vital importance in our British ecosystems are first and foremost, the cattle. So there were always cattle in Britain. You had wild cattle known as aurochs. At some points in our ecological history, we had European bison. And of course, European bison were very numerous across Western Europe not so long ago. And by their grazing and their browsing and their trampling and their dung, they create complexity. They create these wonderful shape-shifting uh, uh, mosaic woodland, woodland, semi-open woodlands that are um, comprised of dynamic scrub, um, open-grown trees, uh, wildflower-rich grazing lawns. And in the absence of these big, heavy bovines, you tend to get a closed canopy woodland, which is far less rich and abundant in nature than, than a semi-open one. So the engineering of 
big wild herbivores is essential. And to a lesser extent, horses and deer and so on also play their part. Um, and this is convenient, of course, because most of our landscapes in Britain are farmed. And, and we want those farming communities to persist. We want them to thrive. They're the soul and the backbone of, of, of rural life. And the beauty of the, 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 the position that cattle hold as a keystone species is that we can ask those farmers to desist from grazing the hills to nothing with non-native sheep and to switch to a more traditional way of farming with native cattle. And we'll simply witness vibrant wood pastures recover on their farms and we can reward them as taxpayers for doing that. Um, the second is, um, in my opinion, the wild boar or its domestic uh, cousin the pig because it rootles and plows and digs the earth and is really nature's gardener and many plants re require the rootling of pigs in order to have bare soil on which to germinate especially the ephemeral wildflowers the poppies and the scarlet pimpernel and cornflowers and so on certain trees black poplar and european aspen or sallow have more or less disappeared the first two of those have more or less disappeared from the british landscape with the pigs which we which we removed from our landscape two or three hundred years ago and the third is the beaver, which you've mentioned. The beaver, I think, may be the most important of all because water is life. And by damming up the little creeks and streams, beavers create these wonderful ribbon wetlands, in which you know, when you look at them, they look like a string of Japanese rice terraces, you know, these extraordinarily intricate dams which fill with water and the water sits there all year round. So you're creating connectivity through the landscape as well as habitat for innumerable species and helping to reduce volatility in the hydrological cycle, reducing flooding and drought. I think beaver beavers are perhaps the most vital of all the keystone species. And finally, the apex predators, which are the wolves and the lynx, to control not just the number of deer, which are out of control in this country and hollowing out our woodlands as a result, but also the behavior of those smaller grazing animals, uh, preventing them from congregating in sensitive spots along the river, for example. We need those four keystones back. And it's no coincidence that with the Highland clearances, which brutally cleared many people from upland Britain and especially Scotland and Wales to make way for sheep, we also cleared their native cattle and we eliminated from nature the wild boar, the beaver and the wolf. And all of that happened in quite a short period of time. And the result is the ecological collapse that we see in most of Brit Britain's upland landscapes today. Now, and to pick up your point about psychology, we've so lost touch with nature as a society, individually and collectively, that we've all got friends that go up to the Highlands of Scotland and post pictures on their Instagram of these great dramatic views. And they think it's wild because they can see a long way and because it's such a beautiful shape, the landscape, and because they've got poor mobile reception. They don't realize that with the removal of the keystones and the invasion of in, Scot in the case of Scotland, vast numbers of deer, vastly inflated numbers of deer, or in the case of Wales and the rest of the British uplands, vast numbers of heavily subsidized sheep. These are some of the most degraded ecosystems in all of Europe. They're a wreckage. They're not a shadow of what they could be. And, um, and, and, and I think this is, um, this is the point that you make about psychology. You know, once we allow nature to start to recover in the presence of ecological processes, um, the recovery can be so dramatic that it just takes us by surprise. And I think beavers have a very important role to play because beavers are the gateway drug you know, in the sense that once, once landowners and land managers and the general public get comfortable with the idea of allowing another species autonomy to manage our watercourses, to build those dams, to do what they do, even if it does look to us disordered and messy, we start to come, become comfortable with the idea of relaxing our own control and allowing another species to get on with it. 
you know, we're raised in Britain to believe that we are order and that nature is chaos. And in fact, it's the other way around. You know, n- nature is order. By removing the beavers and removing nature from the landscapes, we've created dramatic flash flooding, dramatic drought. We are chaos. And so I think beavers are very important in getting us comfortable with her- this idea of restoring natural processes and relaxing our grip on nature and letting the recovery take place. And boy, does it fill people with joy. You know, with, with storks wheeling again above the skies of Sussex, you know, millions and millions of people are engaging with that story, watching the storks on live cams. You know, when the st- story of these storks hit the BBC, it was one of their most popular stories on, on their website that year. You know, the British public are crying out for nature recovery, and they've got a taste for it. So we're living in very exciting times, I believe. I think it's interesting that, that people don't, because there's, there's not been a part of our recent experience, there's not the existing imagination for it. So when people see the storks, as you've just described, or see what the beavers do in, in a year or just two years, the local ones here, 32 dams in two years and three lodges and a completely transformed landscape, albeit small scale. Um, I think people just didn't know that that was possible. So you get this kind of tremendous kind of growth in in possibility. The journey starts and it's a kind of new one. Um, I wonder if we could come back to the the inciting incident for you and talk a little bit about your book, God is an Octopus, and how that, that, that event on your farm uh, changed the way that you started thinking about what, what you could do directly in farming, but also as a, um, in your mini roles that you play, including the writing um, uh, and the podcast as well, which is helping to get across this, this um, exciting range of possibilities. Um, your farm's in Somerset. Um, you wrote about the worst possible thing imaginable uh, to any parent um, about your daughter, Iris. Um, but that led to something um, uh, something beautiful at the end of it all. Yeah, I, um, I'm sure some of your listeners will have gone through terrible, terribly dark times in their life. And you know, for any parent, the loss of a child is your greatest fear. You know, and I, I, I had Iris, we had Iris when I was very young. I was in my, the beginning of my 20s almost a little sister, you know, my, my oldest child. And at 15 and a half, she, she managed to turn a vehicle over on our farm and there was no one around to help her. And, and, um, and, and she died. And in an instant, my world turned very, very dark, unimaginably dark. And I knew, even at the start, I knew I would have to live and survive. I have other children. I have a big family. I have lots of people around who need me and love me and, and, and who I love. And, and and I knew I, I I would have to figure out how to live, and I didn't know how. And what I was astonished by was that I still found beauty in the world. I mean, we're talking in the days afterwards, you know, w- wandering around in a state of complete disorientation and grief and anxiety. And when I walked down to where we have a bend in the river with a deeper patch that we swim in and and, and submerge myself in the water and, and came out blinking into the sunlight and it, it was summertime and dragonflies humming all around me and, you know, a kind of frog's eye view of the world. And I remember consciously thinking, gosh, the world is beautiful. And I can't believe I still find it beautiful. And I felt held by nature in a way to the extent that the only moments in which I kind of felt okay were when I was sitting outside watching the birds or when I was going for a walk with my wife you know, leaning on her, you know, in, in, in the woods or when I was sitting by the pond watching the dragonflies and swimming. And 
immersing myself in the natural world was was really the only way I could find to make myself feel okay here and there. And it was through immersion in nature on the farm that we're lucky enough to be rewilding in Somerset, where we are restoring natural processes alongside a bunch of neighbors and, and we've removed fences and we have a, 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 a small number of native cattle that mooch about and graze and browse and wood pastures are starting to twinkle back into life through the fields. The old field shapes are starting to dissolve into the landscape and we have beavers along the watercourse spreading outwards towards Bristol. And we've got, we've got magic all around us. We have glowworms back, you know, suspended and dark summer nights above where the beaver wetland is. It, it held me, you know, in, in, in a way that I hadn't expected. You know, I, I knew that my love of nature was important in my life. I hadn't realized that it is everything. And um, I, I realize now how important it is for all of us at all times in our life, but especially when we're down and hurting, that, to, to immerse ourselves in nature and to be in nature and to participate in the stewardship and restoration of nature. These are deeply meaningful things. We know now that hospital patients get better faster if they can see nature out of their hospital window. We know that prisoners are far less likely to reoffend if they're involved in growing their own potatoes or spend some time with their hands in the earth during their time in prison. And we know that children with behavioral difficulties and all kinds of issues just thrive when you put them in forest schools and allow them to spend time outside. You know, we, 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 we are intricately and totally wound up in and, and connected with the natural world. And we simply don't know the tiniest fraction of how it works or why that is. You know, the, 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 the 80% of the world's remaining intact ecosystems are in the stewardship of indigenous people, you know, 80%. That's no coincidence. It's because at the very heart of their spiritual and practical lives is, is a harmonious coexistence within nature. You know, this is what we need to learn from, you know, from them. This is what we need to integrate into our modern society is, an, is a perfect connection with nature. And I felt it so powerfully and, and, and so vitally during that very, very difficult time in my life. This was the place in which I rediscovered how to live and rediscovered um, uh, meaning and 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 even joy. You know, I f I feel joy in a different way now. I'm much more respectful of life. I'm much more grateful for the joy I feel when I'm in nature with my family than previously. I think I took it all for granted, perhaps before. So that's why I'm very focused, along with countless others, including you, Jules, in 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 in, in trying to help reconnect people with nature and trying to um, bring about a, a restoration of nature everywhere, everywhere. Beautifully put. Lovely. Um, thank you. And there's something um, uh, like the way you've brought that out. Could we could we come to the London Rewilding Task Force? Because I think there's um, uh, part of the, as you've been saying, part of the narrative about uh, wilding and rewilding is all species, you know, from dragonflies to storks and beavers to, to, to predators. But it's not just about Yellowstone and the Carpathians. It is about this what we might call nearby nature, and uh, um, the example of our capital city is a, is an exemplar because it shows um, us in if we can do it there, we can we can do it anywhere. London, with sixteen hundred sites for nature, I think the report said twenty percent of the area already green. But you made some some um, real good work on re recommending for wilder cities. Could you just say a little bit about that before we come to a couple of conclu concluding recommendations? Yeah, there's no reason why we can't have you know, vibrant, abundant nature right in the middle of our 
most densely populated cities. Now, I've seen extraordinary aggregations of flamingos in Mumbai. You know, I've, I've watched beavers doing their thing in the center of Munich. Um, there are wolves living on the outskirts of, of Paris and Madrid. You know, London is an incredibly important uh, uh, part of the flyway for migrating birds. Extraordinary species of birds are flying over London every time without us even knowing it. And, and the Thames estuary is a, is a pretty good wetland. Um, so the idea that um, that I had when I met Sadiq Khan for the first time at the Glasgow Conference on Climate in 2021 was that we should set up a rewilding London task force. And I pointed out to him that the lockdowns, which had recently finished, had shown us the iniquity that there is in respect of access to nature. I mean, really, to put it simply, you've got to be rich or rural in today's Britain to have access to nature. And if, if you're neither of those things... You know, it's it's often very hard to 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 find nature in which to spend time, even though it is there or the potential for it is there right on the doorstep of the city. Um, so the idea was that we would create a task force with funding from City Hall um, that would participate in a kind of bottom up as well as top down effort to weave wild nature back through the fabric of our city. So with six or seven significant rewilding projects around the periphery of the city, places like Hainault Forest and Colne Chase and uh, 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 Dagenham marshes and so on, and to connect those up with corridors of nature along road verges, railway lines, canals, uh, terraced gardens, hedgehog highways, for example, allow hedgehogs to move along uh, suburban and urban terraced gardens, uh, and and then interventions in the actual built fabric of the city. For example, there's 650 hectares of flat roofs in in in, in London. If, if you fly into London City Airport, you'll see them. Well, if you scatter um, rubble, we call them rubble roofs, with uh, a little bit of topsoil and some wild grass and wildflower seed, you create these self-sustaining um, meadows, which are wonderful habitat for such species as black redstarts and and uh, and and butterflies and so on and you can create these kind of meadows in the air and then if you if you walk in any of london's parks now since we started the task force you'll find loads of pockets of, of scrub and new, new rewilded um water sides along the water courses and so on even really manicured parks like regent's park now are starting to become wilder and wilder and in wandsworth you'll see the, the wandle the, the old stream has been raised to the surface Previously, it had been in a culvert beneath the earth, and and now it's it's a naturally meandering stream crossing Wandsworth Common. So, bringing streams to the surface, um, th there's loads that can be done. And what about species reintroductions? You know, why not white storks nesting on St Paul's Cathedral again? White-tailed eagles in the Thames Estuary. You know, beavers. There's masses of beaver habitat in London, and the mayor himself released beavers in Enfield into a very large fenced enclosure. But they'll have no trouble finding their way out of that fence in due course, as we've seen in Cornwall, Devon, Somerset, Wiltshire, and so on. The beavers spreading back through Britain. Why not beavers in the city? You know, in Coriolanus and Shakespeare's play, uh, London was known as a city of kites. There were so many red kites. Well, you know, why not now? You know, we we want screaming swifts and kites throughout the city. There's so much we can do, and there's so much citizen science and citizen participation that we can bring about. Getting kids out of schools, get get them hauling old tr shopping trolleys out of the watercourses, and 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 planting stuff, and and releasing stuff, and monitoring stuff. And and I think this this has got to be way up the political agenda. I think this this societal reconnection with nature in the very center of our cities and out throughout all of our landscapes has to be a really, really high priority, I think. Um, and um, I feel like the public are going to make that happen because you can't, you just can't get away from it now in every newspaper, all over social media, in school classrooms, people are clamoring for this. Um, I, I think politicians are perhaps behind the curve once again, uh, but it's unstoppable. 
just like renewable energy was unstoppable 15 years ago, solar is now the cheapest source of power the world has ever known. It's a mainstream asset class for investors. It's a, it's, it's the mainstay of power generation across great swathes of the world. Who'd have thought? Well, I think that rewilding nature and reinserting human civilization back frictionlessly into the miracle of nature, I think is going to be the, 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 the big thing that happens in the next decade or two. And I think everyone needs to participate in that. Beautifully put. Well, those are two lovely recommendations about citizen engagement and about policy taking this seriously. But as you've done so well, it's also about storytelling. It's about inspiration. It's about all of us playing a role in changing these relations. Uh, ben Goldsmith, um, author of God is an Octopus and um, host of the lovely podcast on rewilding. Very many thanks indeed. Thank you, Jules, for having me on. I'm such a fan of yours. I feel very honoured to spend this time with you. So welcome to part two of the show today. Um, this is a conversation with Niels Einarsson from the Stephenson Arctic Institute in Akureyri in Northern Iceland. So Niels, welcome to the show. Um, we've been hearing about rewilding from Ben in the first half and your expertise is in fishing management and policy in marine mammals in the Arctic in general. And it's the 25th year celebrations of the Stephenson Arctic Institute. Could could you start by telling us a bit about the work that, that you and colleagues do in the Arctic, and then we'll come specifically to whales and to the orcas, um, which is the focus of this the, this part of the program. Thank you, Jules, for having me. Having me. Um, yes, my, my institute, uh, and I have been director here for 25 years, um, a very long time. Um, we deal with... Uh, sort of uh, human dimension of Arctic uh, social, economic, and environmental systems, uh, usually in a very interdisciplinary manner. We think that uh, for policy-relevant re results, we need interdisciplinarity. Um, so we've been working on projects having to do with uh, political political economy of agricultural systems, uh, fisheries governance and impacts on coastal communities, uh, human development issues in the Arctic. We've led, uh, we've led uh, international projects looking at basically how people are doing in the Arctic. Uh, we've done two of these. Uh, which also have been adopted by the uh, United Nations Development Program. Um, so it's it's a fairly broad. It's a small institute with uh, a broad scope, and we are the only <laughs> only uh, institute in Iceland uh, specifically working on uh, on the Arctic in terms of the human dimension. Yeah, and the Arctic is a, a region that's changing rapidly in biophysical sense because of climate change. Um, presumably, over this 25-year period, you've seen dramatic changes that are affecting the human sphere as well as the natural one um, across, the, across the whole of the Arctic. Yes, quite true. And I think that's been well advertised in uh, media and elsewhere. Uh, global warming, global heating, I would like to like to say, is bringing tremendous changes um, and, and challenges for human adaptation as well. 
but we also have other changes which are economic, political, uh, globalization uh, 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 processes. So uh, it's not only uh, global warming, global heating, sorry. Um, but uh, it also means that we have um, also links up to what I've been maybe preoccupied with, which is uh, uh, society and marine mammals issues. Uh, For example, we have uh, interesting changes uh, in uh, receding sea ice, which gives opportunities for marine mammals that have not been uh, widely spread in the high Arctic, such as orcas. Of course, we've had orcas in the high Arctic, but they're coming in greater numbers, and and uh, which is uh, sort of uh, not welcomed by uh, hunters uh, because it affects uh, whales such as uh, uh, such as uh, narwhal and beluga, and it's also bad news for the beluga and the narwhal. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, let's let's come to the orca then, um, uh, otherwise known as the, uh, as the killer whale, um, which is not 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 the best of kind of terms, but the, but the, but a common one. You you've you've been working in in uh, marine areas in the Iberian Peninsula out to the Azores, and you've got this project now working on looking at what's been happening with orcas that have. I mean, the orca is present in all in all oceans across the world it's a very successful um, marine mammal um, in terms of its uh, geographic spread um, and yet interesting things are happening in this area being renamed orca alley which is gives a kind of sense of how how the marine mammal behavior is is impinging upon human psychology in this particular part of the of the north atlantic tell us a bit about what's happening there and what have you been doing yes you mentioned the the unfortunate name for for the orcas um killer killer whales um and of course it doesn't it, it does have a reference to the uh um the uh the role of these people in of these uh, whales in the ecosystem. It's um, but also interesting if you try to use the, the slightly more neutral um, term orca. That uh, uh, given given to this these uh, whales, which are actually dolphins, they are they are largest dolphins uh, by Carl von Linné. Uh, orca was. Orcus was a, a Roman god of hell. So that's not exactly, and, and a god that you absolutely did not want to mess with. It was the, the bringer of bad, very bad tidings. Uh, so we have these two terms that we use interchangeably for, for uh, orcas, killer whales, and they're both fairly negative. So even though uh, orcas are formidable, I mean, top predators, uh, terrific, uh, charismatic megafauna. They have this ambivalent uh, semantic uh, problem uh, of, uh, of uh, sort of uh, 
that that uh, that uh, may sometimes uh, taint people's attitudes. Um, the problem I'm working on with uh, colleagues down in uh, mainly in Galicia, northwest corner of Spain, but also uh, elsewhere. We have uh, biologists on the project from from Iceland. We have an, a, 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 an American uh, anthropologist from Seattle. We have uh, we have uh, students working on this uh, project, uh, which is still still a pre-project actually, a, a pilot project but we're developing it into a fully-fledged interdisciplinary international project. We're looking at this strange phenomenon of um, of uh, a small group of orcas belonging to the so-called uh, Gibraltar orcas, um, uh, Strait of uh, uh, Cadiz, uh, Strait of Gibraltar orcas. They have been... Um, it's a, it's a, I have to be careful now which word to use, because if I say if I say attack, um, there are immediately a lot of people who reach for the shotguns because they don't like the word attack. They 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 want to use other words such as play or or, or interact. In fact, uh, many biologists want to use the term interact that these are interactions, uh, but that's also problematic because uh, it's it's a pretty unilateral interaction. The sailors don't see it that way. So it's a word play. There's a lot of social semantics involved in this, uh, in this uh, conflict. Um, but in any case, more than 500 boats have been uh, encountered. I'll use the term encountered. Interacted with. Interacted with, yes. They've had en encounters. Um, since the, the uh, summer of 2020. So it's, it's, um, it's been going on for more than three years. And uh, there's still no solution in, 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 in sight. And it's still an enigma uh, from a zoological point of view. And these interactions are taking place all the way from the Strait of Gibraltar, actually slightly also a few within, inside of the Mediterranean, um, from the coast of, on the coast of Morocco. Uh, and uh, I think the further south we have is uh, outside of Casablanca. Outside of Morocco, we've had uh, incidents with uh, small-scale fishermen, orcas uh, uh, showing disruptive behavior, behavior towards their small skiffs, and a few of them have sunk. Uh, that hasn't reached the news because they are not on Facebook, <laughs> or a few of them. And in any case, it, it, it seems that people are not too worried about what happens to uh, small-scale fishermen. Uh, so, this uh, this group of Gibraltar orcas is a subpopulation of only about 40 animals, and only about 15 of them are taking part in these uh, interactions. Um, and uh, four female leaders and uh, 11 
uh, juveniles. Uh, I would normally call them cows and calves, uh, but but I'm going to stick to a more appropriate uh, uh, language in this context. Um, anyway, they follow the tuna. Uh, they gather in the Strait of Gibraltar in the spring, late winter spring, for the tuna, a bluefin tuna, uh, where they actually have conflicts with uh, fishermen who uh, who are longlining for tuna in the uh, Bay of Cadiz. And these uh, orcas are well known for grabbing a free lunch from the longlines. So they are not particularly popular with these, uh, with these fishermen. So uh, I may be able to comment on that, consequences of that later. In any case, they follow the tuna at the coast of uh, Atlantic coast of Iberia and uh, with a lot of interactions with sailboats who are coming up and down uh, from Northern Europe or from the Mediterranean going up to Northern Europe. This is the traditional uh, traditional way or uh, route for uh, sailboats sailing close to the coast. And uh, uh, this behavior continues all the way up to the Biscay. And in fact, this summer, there was an incident, it seems, uh, as far north as between uh, Bergen in Norway and the Shetland Islands. So, but it seems to be escalating. Only three animals started in the summer of uh, uh, 2020. There seems to be escalating in terms of number of animals, potentially, as well as the uh, sea space it is taking place in. So it's uh, it is it's a question of what you what you call a, a serious human animal or human wildlife conflict. I mean, there are conflicts all over the world where people are thousands of people are killed in such conflict especially in asia and africa and other places with uh, big wildlife animals etc elephants hippos other kind of megafauna also exactly lions tigers Mm. so no one has been um no one has been uh no one has died which is the good news um some say say that it's only a question of when because the the orcas they they usually go about they come in usually in groups uh and a group of few few animals they usually go for the rotors and very often these uh modern sailboats have like flimsy uh so-called spade rudders uh, which they can bend and rip off, even bite off, uh, and sometimes leaving a gap uh, for for water to 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 uh, to uh, to sink the boat. Which, if you were being anthropomorphic, you would you would say first thing to do is to is to uh, um, make sure the boat can't can't steer and can't move. So let's go for the rudder first of all. I mean it's. It's fascinating how description of the thing that's happening, the marine mammal behaviour, um, so easily translates into our mind as, as 
um, intention and um, other kind of uh, mappings onto kind of human thinking. I'm not sure that's not the case, but it is interesting that they go for the rudders first of all. Well, it just shows us that anthropomorphism is alive and kicking. And actually not just with uh, the public, also with the scientists, which is slightly interesting. Uh, yes, uh, see, well, I mean, human human thought is metaphorical in nature. I think we have a lot of uh, evidence for that from uh, cognitive science and and uh, and philosophy of, of language and indeed anthropologist. Uh, and anthropomorphism is is one of these uh, metaphorical. Um, cognitive tools we have to to try and explain the world and we try to explain uh human behavior in terms of our behavior which is probably bad zoology and in fact i would say it is not good zoology because they are not human beings um but it also leads to this projection of uh, human humanizing of these animals and humanizing humanizing of uh, of the uh, their behavior it it means that uh, uh, it's been acceptable for several decades to systematically uh, to project like a systematically systematic positive anthropomorphic image into the being of uh, cetaceans and very much started with the save the whale campaign because they knew that in order to get people interested in saving these animals you had to change their image and so anthropomorphism was the way to go and they were extremely successful and i mean that's just how it is so we have a new paradigm in terms of how we we see these animals when i say we uh i'm talking about uh i i would almost say the western middle class but uh, an upper class but uh it so it it's it's not as if i mean i mean half half of the world population doesn't care about cetaceans they don't have any particular thoughts about them um but it it also means that uh, people are projecting to because it's an enigma. <laughs> it's a it's, no one knows nothing, no one knows anything. Sorry, uh, <laughs> and so people are projecting all kinds of human <coughs> uh, human um, reasons, rationality into this behavior, coming up with lots and lots of interesting, sometimes just silly theories. I, I, pardon my friends. I mean, I, I, I just, it's just, I think, I think we can agree that y- you cannot anthropomorphize, uh, 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 animals to the extent that they become like as if they were our family members. Um, so, uh, people are talking about revenge. People are talking about, uh, taking over the oceans, fighting the humans for these marine spaces that are theirs rightfully, etc. Uh, and uh, there's a long list. And uh, But the problem with anthropomorphizing animals is that uh, you can make them good people, but they can also become bad people. And that is also partly what is uh, happening in this uh, with these uh, badly behaving uh, orcas that uh, some people are protecting evil motives that they have become evil basically 
reference to the name as orcas or, or killer whales. And, 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 um, um, so we have, we have, uh, there's a flip coin of the anthropomorphism. It doesn't always work in the favor of these animals. And, and the, 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 there's a challenge because we are interested, obviously, in the safety and security of the, the, the sailors, but also in the conservation of these animals and their welfare. And it goes hand in hand, basically. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a problem when, when the, the image of these animals starts to change from the positive to the negative. And they are giving, given, it's given like a human rationality. Uh, also because people are not interested in saving evil animals. It's just, it's just, uh, that's just how it is. Let's take rats, for example, very often given all kinds of very nasty human, hum, hu, human-like uh, or human qualities. Uh, people don't care about them. So it's a, it's a challenge for conservation. Just like, I mean, we, we can, it, it's a little bit like uh, we know what happened to sharks after uh, the film Dior's. It didn't do much for their image. Definitely not much for the conservation. In fact, it was a disaster. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of what might be might be happening uh, in this uh, in this discourse because it's so loaded with anthropomorphic sentiments. Yeah. So is it has uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? And the fact that this has all happened, five hundred boat encounters attacks using other form of language over the past three and a bit years. Um, yes. And and spreading, as you said, the first example up by between Shetland and Norway. Um, it, is there a? I suppose it's only hypotheses at this stage. But is there any any evidence that cultural behaviours, if we can put it that way, um, uh, or just behaviours, um, uh, are spread between orca populations that they could pass on? Um, uh, kind of examples of how to hunt or how to how to how best to capture seals on a on an ice flow or whatever the context how how best to hunt a young humpback that they could pass yes. on behaviors to to other populations um or is it just this is all part of the story space that that emerges around around the orca that you've been describing which which at one level is is simply fascinating and interesting and you can see why people would speculate but as you rightly also said there are conservation consequences as well which may take us into a different kind of sphere about intervention what should we do or should we not yeah. do <clears throat> well i i'm one of the, one of the, one of the reasons i worry about the prevalent uh anthropomorphism humanizing of these people's sorry I'm, it was That's a, a good thing. Slip the, these whales' uh, behavior is that is that um, uh, well. I, to me, talking about um, obviously, they, these animals do have socially transmitted learned behavior, uh, and and uh, as far as I know. Lots of other animals also do have that um, common among primates. 
um, when you start to talk about culture, um, very vaguely defined among uh, animal populations, um, you, I, to me, as an anthropologist, because obviously uh, culture is our bread and butter, bread, bread and butter. Sorry, and and uh, pretty much not unique to animals, but very much what defines us as a a a as as a species. Um, I've noticed that cetacean experts, even the best, easily slip into anthropomorphism when they start talking about these animals as uh, possessing culture that basically they are like us they're not that different from us so um, um, for example uh, even though there was a recent uh, signed letter by many prominent uh, international experts uh, calling for one of the things they said in that letter that we we should not anthropomorphize uh, these animals because there was a certain danger to it. Uh, they are not evil. They cannot be evil, uh, obviously. Uh, well, if they can't be evil, then they can't be good, I guess. But it's still uh, in the same letter they 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 describe this. Of course, no one knows as a possible. Uh, cultural fat, like a fashion fat among, I guess, people, young people, whatever. Now, that's pure anthropomorphism. Uh, I know that they... they Fats they, can come and go, can't they? I mean, it's... it's no, it's, you yeah, have to yeah. choose, I yeah, think, yeah. because uh, cetacean experts, they think they can use sort of uh, anthropomorphism in sort of half-joking manner, because they know it, it's not... Th that's not how these animals work. But for the public, I think, when scientists use this kind of uh, metaphors, it actually counts. Yes. Yeah. And it strikes and, home, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So so th this comes down to the sort of sociology of science issue here. Uh, what kind of paradigms are we are we working with? So you've talked, um, uh, you mentioned the boats. Is it, you've said sailing boats. Is it mainly, mainly or only sailboats, yachts? Yeah, or, or it, exactly. Not, not, not fishing boats? Yes, yeah. yes. And I have a conflict of interest here because I'm a sailor. I have a sailboat. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just a straight interest. <laughs> exactly. That's also why, why I know about weak rudders. <laughs> yes, yeah, right, 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 exactly. It's, it, in any case... Um, um, yeah, 99% more or less is sailboats, which is what part of the enigma. Why? Because in the same waters, you have similar sized thousands and thousands of commercial fishing boats. Why do they leave them alone? Why don't they mess with the commercial fishing boats? Now, that's a question I'm asking. We are asking the fishermen in my team. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get some answers because that might also be a key to answering this this question exactly. or why they are attacking yes. boats yes. or or the or, or or this behavior and w the form it takes um i i also want to say that uh, that uh, yeah th this is it's an enigma basically which gives rise to all kinds of speculations. That's also why we need, I think, um, 
a balanced interdisciplinary uh, comparative approach to this uh, issue. It's a, it is a becoming a serious wildlife issue, depending depending on how we define serious. At least it's causing a lot of concern uh, among sailors. It's also it also means that people are not sailing into these waters, which has consequences for the marine tourism in in the uh, in in Spain and Portugal. There's a lot of expensive infrastructure which has been built uh, in the past years and decades to provide services to these uh, these uh, sailors, who, by the way, are tourists. Sailors never talk about themselves as tourists. They don't want to, but they are tourists, just marine tourists. But by some reason, for example, in Galicia, where I work, they are not seen as proper tourists, not like the, the people who walk to Santiago to, to, to have a look at St. James. Um, so uh, I think we should be, we should be considering the, using the term peregrinos do mar, which means the pilgrims of the sea, uh, because if if uh, if this was happening on land to the uh, pilgrims walking the uh, Camino de Santiago, something would be done immediately. Uh, here we have very little being little being done. It's inefficient, chaotic, and it needs much more careful and uh, careful good governance. To be to be uh, tackled. It also needs. We also need, I think, to develop effective means of deterrence, because now people are resorting to all kinds of homemade homemade uh, uh, methods, which can be potentially harmful for these animals or even to the people who are using them, like uh, small bombs and uh, and. Uh, and, and this and that, uh, bleach, uh, sand, which is potentially not harmful, but not effective. I think we need, and, and it's possible to to design these. We have biologists on board of our project who say it would be relatively simple to design uh, acoustic devices that could uh, produce annoying sounds, which would mean that the orcas would probably leave these boats alone. It's been designed for other whales. It needs to be designed specifically for species, but it's possible, but but very little is happening. Uh, although although, uh, although uh, there is a great need. Well, fascinating. Thank you, Niels. I mean, we've, we've seen a context of, um, in our lifetimes, in the lifetimes of many people, uh, whales going from, whales in general, going from being hunted mammals to being uh, valued as, as uh, um, wildlife to look at. There's a big whale-watching industry, if we can put it that way, certainly yep, tourism yep, aspect yep. In, in Iceland, very successful. Yep. Um, yes. hun- hundreds of thousands of people paying to travel on boats. I've done it myself, um, yes. to travel on boats to look at whales. And that's a dramatic change in the relations between humans and whales. And now we have a, a wrinkle occurring um, uh, in plain view. As you've said, these sorts of changes may well have been happening out of plain view in, in other places. But it's, it's something that is um, 
fascinating and intriguing and as you say an enigma and um, let's hope we learn more about why and what to do about it in future years I absolutely agree Niels Einarsson from the Stephenson Arctic Institute in Akureyri in Northern Iceland thank you very much indeed for coming on thank you That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.